0: Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Hey everyone. Great to be with you this Sunday uh, on this Lord's day. If you take out your Bible and turn to Mark chapter 10. We're going to continue our study in Mark's gospel. And today we have the famous passage of the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, verse 17 and following. And I'm calling this message, The Cost of the Kingdom, The Cost of the Kingdom. And as you're turning there in your Bibles, I just wanted to mention to you that in a couple of weeks, we're very excited to roll out a fresh version of our online gathering together. Uh, We've got a team of people that are involved in putting on this online service and we're looking forward to actually combining the worship and the teaching components and having one live gathering together that we record and then broadcast. For you Right now, uh, Pastor Brenton leads worship independently of me. I teach the Bible independently of him, and there are really no people in the room with us aside from our studio tech uh, who's doing all the recording. And so we're going to try to simulate a live gathering. You'll see some other people there interacting with the Word, taking in the Bible study. And the reason that we're doing this is in part because when we gather together as a church, one of the things that God speaks to us through are the others that gather together. And so we're going to try to, as best we can during this wild season, create that sense, that reality that we are gathering together as a church on Sundays, even though we're doing it in this strange and totally different way than we're used to. And by the way, I just wanted to mention before we get into the word that it is an absolute joy to produce and to provide this for you, to be able to serve you right where you're at, to be able to minister to you in your time of need, this scary and frightening and confusing time. Uh, It's our pleasure to be able to take care of you and to deliver the word and to still have a semblance of a gathering during a time like this. And of course, we all look forward to the day where there's no fear, no worry about the coronavirus, and we can come together and hug each other and uh, love on one another together physically. But right now, during this time, uh, for those of you especially who need it, it is a total blessing uh, to do this for you. Plus, it gives me great practice for the live gathering on Sunday. So thank you. It's a lot of fun. All right, let's go to Mark chapter 10 this morning. Mark chapter 10 this morning. Last week, we saw Jesus ministering to the little children. And this week, it says in verse 17, And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Lord, we come to you today knowing, like this man, that we need something from you. And Lord, as this man desired eternal life, Lord, we say the same thing. We know that without you, there is something missing. So teach us, Lord, about yourself. Teach us about eternal life. Teach us about salvation. Teach us about life in the kingdom today. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, our story begins with a man who is desperate for Jesus. The other gospels tell us that he was young and that he was a ruler. And so we often call this man the rich young ruler because we'll discover through the study that he is a wealthy man. But even though he had wealth and even though he had power, he felt that something was missing from his life. And he suspected that Jesus had the answers to the questions that he was asking. And he was desperate for these answers, so it says in verse 17 that he ran to Jesus, that he knelt before Jesus. And he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we can't help but notice that there's something off about the man's question. You know, present day believers, us, we understand that this man asked amiss, what must I do to inherit eternal life? To him, he thought that there was an action he could perform that would unlock eternal life, something that he could do to earn salvation. Of course, we know that salvation is entirely a gift of God, entirely of the grace of God, so that no one can boast of a work they perform to be saved. We know that we must receive Christ's all-sufficient work by faith. Last week, Jesus demonstrated this with the example of children. Children receive everything, Jesus said. That's how someone gets the kingdom. It must be Received, But this man, immediately following that interaction, apparently didn't get the memo about receiving the kingdom. He wants to achieve the kingdom. He wanted to earn eternal life. But Jesus knew that he could not enter the kingdom through merit. So he responded to this man. Verse 18, and Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Now, when the man asked this question about eternal life, uh, he gave Jesus a title. Uh, He called Jesus in verse 17, good teacher. And Jesus, when he responded to the man, he latched on to that title and that word, good, before he answered the man's question. Before answering the man, Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, this wasn't Jesus's way of distancing himself from God. It wasn't his way of saying, hey, I'm not God. I'm nowhere near to what he is like. No, that's not what Jesus was doing. As we'll see in this passage, Jesus Jesus thought that following him was equal to following God. Instead, what Jesus was doing was planting a seed in this man's mind. He had thought too lowly about what it meant to be good. So when he saw Jesus, he thought of Jesus as a good teacher. But the Bible says that there is none good, not even one, but that all are lost and broken under sin. And so the man needed to understand that only God is good for two reasons. First, he needed to think of himself as broken and under sin rather than a good man who could do something good to inherit eternal life. Second, he needed to think of Jesus As God the Son, the perfect good man and holy God who deserved the man's allegiance. In just a moment, Jesus is going to say, follow me. Only God is good. Only Jesus is good. So Jesus is God. That's what Jesus is hinting at or the seed that he's planting. But Jesus didn't stop there. Uh, He reminded the man, as we read there in verse 19, of some... Of the Ten Commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't defraud, honor your parents. Now these six rules all came from the second tablet of the Ten Commandments. There were two tablets of the Ten Commandments and then on the second tablet these rules were listed. That tablet, the second one, had everything to do with mankind's relationship with other people. In other words, the second tablet gave commands on how to treat others. Now, how did the man respond to what Jesus said? Jesus said, okay, you know all the commandments or at least the second tablet to treat other people in this way. How did the man respond to Jesus? Let's read in verse 20. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened, verse 22, by the saying, he, the man, went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Now this man responded to Jesus, we just read there in verse 20, by making a big claim. He said, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. (laughs) As Christians, we doubt that he really had kept all these things from his youth. And one reason that we doubt him is because we know of the inward nature of the law. It's Jesus who told us that the law is not only external, but also internal in nature. So when the man says that he's kept all these commandments from his youth, we suspect that he's being hypocritical. But Jesus didn't respond to the man like he normally responded to hypocrisy. You know, he hated hypocrisy and often rebuked it. But here, Mark tells us that Jesus, in verse 21, looked at the man and loved the man. This was a look of compassion from Jesus. He wanted to reach this man, and it was a look of appreciation. This man had earnestly sought to obey God with his life. So from a posture of love, Jesus then diagnosed this man. He has led the man perfectly up to this point in the story. The man knows he doesn't have life, but he sees himself as a keeper of the second tablet. He thought of himself as devoted to God. So Jesus told the man to sell everything and give it to the poor before following him. Now, Jesus, when he said this to the man, was not sharing with us a path to works-based righteousness. He's not trying to tell the world that mankind is saved through generosity, benevolence, or sacrifice. Nor was Jesus sharing his economic policy in an attempt to say that wealth is evil. Now, he's not making that claim. But this particular man had a particular problem. He thought of himself as a keeper of the second tablet, but he was breaking the first tablet. If the second tablet has to do with our relationship with others, the first tablet has to do with our relationship with God. The first commandment was, you shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment said, you should not make or bow down to any lesser gods. The third commandment said you must respect God's name. And the fourth commandment said that you must honor God's day. This is the first tablet. Each commandment had to do with our relationship with God. And though this man felt that he'd been faithful in how he treated others, Jesus's demand on his life made it obvious that the man was actually out of step with God. Again, God had said, you shall have no other gods before me. When the man went away sorrowful from Jesus, he demonstrated that his great possessions were new gods that he had put in front of the true and living God. He left this scene disheartened, unable to reorient his life around Jesus. And that's the amazing portion of Jesus's command, by the way. You know, here he is talking about the second tablet, but clearly the man had not gotten the first tablet right. He was not following the true God of Israel, but he was following the God of money. To this, Jesus said, get rid of everything and follow me. He didn't tell the man to follow God. He told the man to follow himself. To Jesus, getting the first tablet right meant following Jesus. Jesus is God, the only one worth following. In the kingdom, to have life, God must be first. Jesus must be first. You see, in the kingdom, God must be first, but the man didn't want Jesus to be first in his life. He couldn't handle the thought of replacing his wealth with Jesus. Again, this wasn't Jesus's prescription for the entire human race. You know, some believers are called to have wealth in this present age, but it was the right prescription for this man. He had made his money into a God and that God needed to be dethroned. Now in wanting his possessions more than Christ, the man, he really wanted too little. His problem wasn't wanting more, but settling for less. He should have wanted more. In his heart, he knew that something was off, but he should have kept searching and longing until he figured out it was better to have nothing with Jesus than everything without Jesus. He wanted way too little. Jesus is the greatest possession that anyone can have. Now this man's story should remind us that following Jesus requires radical reorientation of our priorities. We should make no other God before him. Only God through and in Christ can satisfy us. Nothing that we place in front of him is better than him. No attitude that disrespects his name will ever satisfy us and life without worship and time for him is not a good life. We must give Jesus first tablet devotion. So don't forget that life in the kingdom means God is first. Give him the first part of your day. Give him the first day of your week. Give him the first of your income. Set God above all things. This is the throne that Jesus deserves. All right, but let's go on in our passage. It says in verse 23, and Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were, verse 26, exceedingly astonished. And said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. So the man, he went away sorrowful. And Jesus is there left with his disciples. And he first ruminated on the hindrance wealth can be keeping someone from entering the kingdom he said in verse 24 it's difficult to enter the kingdom of god it's hard enough as it is in other words but wealth creates according to jesus a whole other obstacle now it's important to note in teachings on passages like these that jesus had and has wealthy followers You know, people like Joseph of Arimathea or many of the women on his ministry core team were wealthy people. And once the church got started, there were many wealthy believers. Philemon is a good example. He has a whole book of the Bible written to him. He was a wealthy man with an estate so large that the Colossian church was able to meet on his property. In Jesus' kingdom, every class and income bracket can find hope in the truth of the gospel. Jesus did not think that wealth could only be acquired by trampling down other people, nor did he think that even having wealth in the first place was some kind of sin. These are thoughts that are beginning to prevail in our society. But on the other hand, wealth, according to Jesus, can be dangerous. It was dangerous for the man in our story today, and it has crippled many people over the years. Christians who are wealthy need the Spirit's help and great maturity to navigate their wealth well. You see, with wealth, the heart can be tempted to fixate on this world alone. Instead of re-engineering life today based on the hope of tomorrow, wealth can encourage us to become complacent and satisfied with life today. Wealth can also tempt us to think everything good can be bought with a price. But of course, we all know this has never been true. The best things in life, love and joy and peace are not guarantees for those who have means. All the fruit of the spirit is available to all believers, wealthy or not, and those fruits describe the good life. You see, the Bible presents wealth as a test. If your heart can navigate wealth and still be devoted to God, you've passed the test. If, like this man, you bail on allegiance to Jesus in favor of wealth, you've failed the test. For this reason, we should celebrate those in the church who are wealthy and faithful to Christ. It's an amazingly mature combination. In a way, it's easier to cling to God when you're poor. You know that you need him, but when, when you're wealthy and you're desperate for God, it is a beautiful thing to behold. But the Bible says that wealth is also not only a test, but also a responsibility. We are stewards of everything that God has entrusted into our care, from our planet to our bodies to our relationships. If wealthy, you've got to steward that wealth well. I'm not just talking about giving it away or building churches or supporting missionaries. You've got to be a good leader. If you have employees, pay them well. Give them a good working environment and spend well. Give the rest of us a vision of what life could be. Your life is important to those who are following your lead. And you have the opportunity to bless many people with your discernment and wisdom when the disciples heard Jesus talking about how hard it is for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom, they couldn't believe what they heard. You know, they grew up in a society that believed that wealth was a sign of God's blessing. Riches equaled righteousness. Now their rabbi is telling them that it's hard for wealthy people to enter the kingdom. And he made it sound impossible, saying that it'd be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle then Jesus added, but with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible in verse 27. In other words, according to Jesus, the rich young ruler could have gone into and enjoyed the kingdom. He was not excluded because of his wealth. It was hard for him to walk away from making his wealth, his God, but with God, It was possible for him to do it. Notice that Jesus did not say God can save anyone. That's true, but it's not Jesus's point right here. What he said was, with God, all things are possible. The key is with God. In other words, God would have joined up in empowering this rich young ruler to abandon all to follow Jesus. He would have discovered a fresh power and strength for the journey. He would have borrowed the power of God. He would have done the impossible with God. You know, Paul talked about this from his own life. Paul shared in Romans chapter 7 that before he surrendered to Christ, while he was still a Pharisee keeping the commandments or so he thought, he wrestled with the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. You know, he felt like he was keeping everything else, that there were no gods before God, that he was keeping the Sabbath, that he was giving, that he was not lying, you know, all of these things, no murder, no adultery. But when he thought about the command not to covet, he felt that he couldn't keep his inner man from coveting. The law showed him the power of sin within, and in fact, awoke sinful desire within, And so he believed eventually in Jesus and accordingly, he died to that old relationship with the law. But did that mean that he no longer cared about obedience to God? Not at all. Everything changed on the day he became a Christian, just like it changed for you. In his former life before Jesus, it's like Paul was married to the legal code of the law of God. But when he believed in Jesus, he died to that old relationship with the law. He said it this way in Romans 7, verse 6. He said, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which has held us captive, so that we should serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. You see, as you pursue the kingdom, you've got to remember that it will be totally impossible by yourself but there's a new way of the spirit that you can now surrender your life to God by self-denial living for others. It's all unnatural to us, but as you follow Jesus, he will help you. We now follow God by the new way of the spirit, not the old way that this rich young ruler tried through the keeping of the law. Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And he is with us always as we do the work that he's asked us to do. I think about the team of young adults who are working hard each week to serve the middle school and high school students uh, at Calvary and in this community. You know, they gather on Tuesday nights and reach out to the students throughout the week. It's tiring work. And especially on Tuesdays, after they have a long day of work themselves, it's a sacrifice for them to spend a night Serving these rambunctious teenagers. You know, Netflix is calling them, I'm sure. Stay home, chill, relax. But they show up and they lay down their lives so that Jesus can be famous to the kids who come that night. They wanna serve the next generation. They want them to love Christ. And as they serve, the spirit aids them. God gives them strength and energy. He lifts them up for the task. With man, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. You see, when we extend ourselves as a form of worship and obedience to Christ, he strengthens us. All right, let's conclude with the last section of our teaching today. Peter, verse 28, began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Now we all love Peter so much. He just says, what he's thinking. And he thought about everything that he just witnessed. The the rich young ruler, Jesus had implored or invited him to leave everything and follow him, Uh, but he didn't do it. But Peter thought about it and he realized, well, we did that, we left everything and followed Jesus. And so he tells Jesus about it, you know, like, hey, Jesus, we left everything just saying, but we did what you asked this man to do. Now it's fascinating because Jesus did not rebuke Peter but instead told him of the great blessings that come from following him. You know, any house or family or possession that believers leave for Jesus and the gospel's sake will not go unrewarded. And I know that some of you have been in that camp. You've been separated from things and from people that you love because of your devotion to Christ. Jesus said that we would receive a hundredfold now and eternal life later. You know it's true when you forsake the old life and devote yourself to Christ you get much in return. Sometimes your allegiance to Jesus will separate you from family or friends or even possessions. But for all that you lose you get a lot more in return. When you become a believer you gain a worldwide family. You get a connection to the nations. I don't know if you've ever fellowshiped with believers on other continents but it's always so special. You know, you land in the country feeling like an outsider, but Christian fellowship makes you feel like you belong. But some of you might be reading what Jesus said and wonder why you still feel so lonely. You know, loneliness is a big issue in this life. Many of us feel disconnected, misunderstood, or simply alone. These words that Jesus said, you know, you have all these siblings and parents and houses and lands, they're yours in Christ. Uh, They might sound like a distant hope, but not your current reality. You might not even know one believer that you could walk into their door right now and plop on the couch and say, oh, I'm just not doing well. And if this describes you, let me say a couple of things. First, we are likely meant to understand Jesus's promises in the realm of Christian service. The disciples devoted themselves to Christ's work. So while missionaries might experience the truth of Jesus's words to the strongest degree, one way to respond is to get involved in the kingdom work. To me, there's no greater group to have fellowship with and be part of than a group that is serving Jesus together. Second, the massive network that Jesus described is yours as a believer, but might not be your experience. This means that while you have a worldwide family, while they are yours, you haven't gotten a chance to enjoy them. Aside from trying to engage the church more, you might also have to just wait for Jesus's reality to unfold when you get to heaven. There you will realize how big your new family is. Third, Jesus is the best family and best friend that you could ever have. Even when the church seems awkward for you, Jesus is there for you. He wants you to feel at home with him. And perhaps a season of loneliness can be useful to train your hopes on him. Now you probably noticed in verse 30 that Mark also included a little clause from Jesus. He said, we get all this with persecutions. This would have comforted Mark's original readers, uh, the believers in Rome uh, because they suffered a lot of persecution at the hands of the Roman empire. Their persecution didn't mean though, that they were doing anything wrong. It just confirmed that they were following Jesus. And this phrase, in a sense, should comfort us as well. No one wants to be persecuted, but it can have a purifying effect on the church. And it can also deepen our Christian friendships. You know, the more hostile a society grows against Christianity, the more believers in that society must press in to their relationships with each other. But Jesus concluded this passage with one last verse. Let's read it together. But many, verse 31, who are first will be last, and the last first. This is a statement that Jesus used often in his teaching. In this story, it's got a powerful application. Think about the rich young ruler. We don't know what happened to him. We don't know what happened to him later in life? Perhaps he submitted himself at some point to Christ. But here in this story, he placed himself first. And Christ tells us that he will end up last. Jesus, however, is the opposite of this rich young ruler. He was eternally rich, but he became poor for us. He was young probably about 32 or 33 years old at this point in his life and ministry. He was a ruler, being the king of kings and the Lord of lords, but Jesus, the ultimate rich young ruler, let himself be last. And because he lowered himself more than anyone in history has lowered themselves, the father, it says in Philippians 2, will exalt him more than anyone else has ever been exalted. Jesus was last, and he will be first. And because of that, Jesus is our example in the kingdom. He's the one that we must emulate. In the kingdom, God himself is our example. He gave up more than any of us will ever give up for the kingdom. The question is, will we give up a little to follow him? Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.